Welcome to the Tribute to Happiness at Work, at Home, in Life podcast. What is happiness? Where do you find happiness? How do you feel happiness? Do you control your own happiness or is somebody else controlling your happiness? Are you living a meaningful and worthwhile life where you experience joy, contentment and positive well-being? Do you feel happiness at work, at home and in life? In this Tribute to Happiness podcast, you will discover what happiness means to people all over the world and how they implement happiness in their life. Here is your host, Hjeden Svenperson, and with him you'll explore these and other interesting topics. Hello and good morning. This is Iceland Calling. How do you define happiness? There are probably many ways to do that, but one thing is for sure. Happiness is not one size fits all. I think we can all agree that our emotional state is a huge factor when it comes to happiness. A person's emotional state can vary throughout the day between very unhappy and very happy. If we experience frequently positive emotions and we have an overall sense that our life is good and meaningful, Do we then have a good recipe for happiness? In this episode of Tribute to Happiness, we will talk about students and their situation. How do you find happiness at studying? Well, who are we going to call now? I don't know any songs from this country, but United Arab Emirates. Well, here we go. Hello, hello. Hello. Hello, hello. Hi, Who is this Louis- random person on the phone? Yes, hi, Louise. Or should I say, Doctor Louise Lambert? Louise is fine. Oh, yes. It's nice to hear from you. It's great. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for uh, joining me on this podcast about uh, a tribute to happiness. Yes. A tribute to happiness in higher education. Yes. And yeah, that is what we are going to focus on this time. So, United Arab Emirates and Louise, because I know we met in Copenhagen and you are from Canada. So please tell us what you are like. Are you on an adventure or like why on (laughs) earth is a Canadian in Dubai? Well, there's a lot of us here. Uh, In fact, there's a lot of everybody here. So the UAE is what we call it, just for short, um, is full of expatriates. So there's 10 million in total, 9 million are expatriates, and 1 million are nationals. And so I am very fortunate. I've been here for several years now, and I've been very fortunate to be working in the national universities with national students. 
And one of the things I do is I teach in psychology, but I am also a psychologist. I also do research. I do program development. Uh, of course, I took the training with you in happiness in Copenhagen. And uh, I just do all sorts of stuff. So it's a good time to be talking about well-being, yes. um, particularly with all this COVID-19 stuff going on. Uh, but particularly uh, well-being in universities. Yes. So how? So I'm how hoping how, that will be. The- yeah. How 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 did the uh, like did you get much affected in uh, UAE, <laughs> Dubai? So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like everybody, we've been affected just like everyone else. Uh, we were quite fortunate that very quickly the country got locked down, also because the country is smaller, so it's easier to do. Yeah. Uh, the borders were closed, and we were on very strict lockdown to the point where you needed to apply online for a permit just to leave your house to go to grocery shopping for 60 minutes. Uh, but as a result, um, the numbers are uh, pretty good, relatively speaking. Um, we also have one of the highest rates of testing. Okay. And so, um, I mean, I guess the numbers look high, but it is because we are testing so much. Uh, there's a number of different field hospitals. So if anybody tests positive, uh, you know, depending on the severity of their symptoms, they can either stay at home. Uh, otherwise, they go to the field hospital uh, until they get better. And, uh, yeah, so we've already opened up the country. We're back up to almost 100% capacity, and it's uh, life as usual, just with a mask. Yes. So li- and a li- little bit of curse. Yeah, life as <laughs> usual in a new way. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. so, so a little bit of adjustment, but it's okay. Yes, we are we are coping. So that's uh, we always can learn new stuff. So that's that's great. But as exactly. we uh, as we were saying, you are a chief happiness officer, and you are also in the uh, positive psychology field. You are you are studying that field also, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yep. so so that's my area of specialization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it. When you talked about when we talked together yesterday about you coming on my on this podcast tribute to happiness, uh, we you came with a new like twist, uh, talking about the well-being of a student in a university or student in general. So I would like to thank you for that input. So happiness at university or happiness at studying like how because happiness at work and if we take out the work and say that's the study happiness at studying so how is the well-being how what did you do to like encourage people so they would not get like crazy I think that's like, I love that. So they didn't get crazy. Um, so let me back up a little bit. So the reason that I'm focusing on happiness in higher education institutions, and really this applies for all education institutions, even junior high and high school, but universities in particular, because it's the one group that we forget about. So we focus on happiness at work. We focus on happiness out there in the community. We focus on happiness at home. 
and university students would kind of go, oh, well, they're fine. They're partying. They're whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet, and yet they're not fine. So the research would suggest, and even intuitively, if you think about most university students, especially in their first year, it's a super stressful year. It's the first time that they're being independent. They're away from their parents. They're making decisions that are going to have real life consequences. You know, when you're at home, you can blame your parents, but when you're at university, it's on you. Uh-huh. Um, they're making decisions about money. They're making decisions about relationships. They're navigating a lot of real serious issues that we don't necessarily give them credit for. Um, the other difficulty with that time period is we don't always take university students seriously. So we either think of them as, well, you're not an adult yet. Wait till you get to real life and then we'll pay attention to you. Or, um, well, you're old enough. You should know better. And they're sort of trapped in this age gap that no one's really paying attention. If academic institutions are paying attention, they're often paying attention to depression, anxiety, learning, disabilities, addictions, and, and that's okay. But they're certainly not commonly paying attention to how do we teach university students these skills to be happier. And that's one area that's really overlooked. And that's where positive psychology comes in. So positive psychology is a psychology like all the rest. It is a science. Uh, and rather than only exclusively focus on removing negative emotions like depression, anxiety, anger, all this other stuff, we also look at teaching the skills for well-being um, to not only get from a, a negative to a zero, but to get from a zero to a positive. So we're trying to promote positive mental health. We're trying to prevent uh, mental health issues from occurring. We're also trying to um, encourage and mobilize and capitalize the strengths of young people to reach opportunities and really to reach their best selves. And that needs instruction. The same way we would teach happiness at work, same way we would teach happiness at home, university students need that as well. Um, but there are a few other interesting things about university students that I think we, we also forget. Um, one is that developmentally speaking, depression, anxiety, and stress peak uh, at about the age of 25. And, and, and this is, um, you know, if we look at studies done worldwide, longitudinal, experimental, uh, prospective studies, this is kind of the trend we see globally. So this means that mental health issues tend to be at their worst at that age. And again, this is also the age that we ignore students the most. Um, so when students need it the most, it's when we are absent as a society. We pay attention to the least. Now, in their first year, students, uh, it tends to be their worst. They do adjust, certainly uh, after that first year. But the research would also suggest that they do not return to the pre-levels of functioning. So they remain stressed. They remain anxious. Now, maybe that's just part of being an adult because it, it is kind of miserable for the most part. Um, but they also need skills to be able to cope with that. Because if that stays that way, 
um, this has long-term implications. Those students start showing up to class less. They drop out more. This has implications for unemployment later. This has implications for relationships later, uh, how much income they earn. And we see that mental health issues follow them throughout their lives. Um, and even if they don't necessarily follow them, the impact remains. So when we start attending less, you're less academically successful, you start making less money, it's harder to get jobs, you start to fall behind. And over time, the gap gets harder and harder to close. So I'm, I'm kind of giving you a, a, a bit of an overview here, but just to set the stage and for us as a society to start paying attention more to university students because they are struggling and they want help and they are seeking help. And many universities are meeting that challenge, but many universities are not. And, and students really have nowhere to go. And so this is where I'm coming in with, we need um, to be looking at skills, we need to be looking at curriculum, we need to be looking at how do we continue to support young people so that they can be effective employees, they can also be effective parents, effective partners, and, and have better life outcomes how how is it if i if i may ask you like the combination of students in the university where you teach or where you where you work how, how, so in, how many are there and are there many nationalities and the second question about regarding this is are the universities still uh, applying curriculum and like exams and stuff like they did 40 years ago or 50 years ago. like because there is also this pressure of you have to have this amount of units to get a lot like to go from first year to second year and like and the pressure is also there you know, yeah you know there's, a, I mean? there's a lot of pressure yeah. yeah yeah no there's a, definitely a lot of pressure on students um so i'll just back up and, and address your your earlier question so at my particular university, uh, it's a national university. So 100%, um, well, I lied, maybe 98%. They just started to accept a few international students, but largely it's only nationals of this country. So it is not open to anybody else. Um, and, and that, so they have also particular concerns that maybe other university students would not have. So I'm just kind of speaking generally about university students worldwide. Um, and, you know, to come back to your other question, do universities, are they still using the same methods as they did 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago? Yes, for the large part. Um, and this in itself creates other issues as well, because, of course, if the workplace has changed, if we start reverse modeling, this means universities also need to change as well. So many of the skills that students are learning in university help them to get credit, helps help them to move on to the next layers of learning, but do not necessarily help them in the workplace. In fact, I would say not very much at all. And so increasingly employers in the workplace are also saying, you know, we need students with life skills being able to regulate, regulate their emotions, um, character strength, persistence, 
bravery, courage, confidence, self-efficacy. And we don't teach these things in school. We don't teach these things at university. So that's also another way in which we're disadvantaging many many students. We're not teaching them the skills for well-being. We're not even teaching them the skills to be functional at work beyond simply what they learn in a textbook. Um, so, th- you know, th- this is a lot of what I, I'm trying to broach. So I developed um, a positive psychology curriculum, uh, and I've tried it in a number of different places. So I've also published and empirically validated many of these programs. So there are uh, two or three public studies on these programs. And in, in one instance, what I've done, uh, not so much as part of the curriculum, but just a skills learning program, is to teach students looking at the skills of well-being. So what are positive emotions? What's the value of positive emotions? And this is something that we just need to teach people in, in society generally. So positive emotions are not just, you know, the cherry on top of life, but they, they nourish us. They help us to see the world differently. They help us to make better decisions. They help us to be more flexible in our thinking. They help us to see opportunities versus only focusing on, on issues. Um, I also, um, so one of these uh, strategies then is how to generate positive emotions. So using things like humor, you know, humor is something that we overlook, but yet we know that people who have a sense of humor actually get by a lot easier in life. Um, This could be things like developing optimism, um, trying to look for opportunities, even when situations look really bad. And that's a skill that we need to learn. That's also worthwhile for us. Uh, Other things is, you know, learning how to savor positive emotions. So you experience, um, you know, maybe you're going to a concert, classical music, although most of these students don't like classical music. But anyway, I'm just <laughs> using a, an example. Um, you know, you go to a concert and then you feel uplifted and inspired. And to teach them that that's a positive emotion that you can savor and you can extend. And if you can find a way to maintain that high, even for a couple of hours, there's benefit in doing that to our health, to our relationships, again, to our thinking processes. So it's putting value on positive emotions. And again, it's not just a trivial, silly thing that these overly buoyant, you know, unicorns, annoying unicorns do, but there's, there's benefit to doing that. But, so that's one part of the program. Yeah. Um, I also talk a lot about engagement. Um, so getting students to think about what are their character strengths. So not just what's their degree, uh, the university degree, or uh, what kind of workplace skills they're good at, but their personality. So if you're somebody whose integrity means a lot to you, there's probably certain careers that you're going to be better suited to than others. Uh, if your character strength is love of learning, there's probably going to be certain careers that you're better suited to than others. If you love people and you're very extroverted and now you're going to go be an accountant, that might not be a good match for you <laughs> or, or vice versa. So it's, it's getting them to 
really kind of think about what kind of life do they want and how do they start putting the pieces together, not just to make money, but to have a worthwhile life, to have a meaningful life, to have something that, that fits for them and, and really reflect who they are. So that would be uh, another thing that, um, that we cover in this program. But how how is it like with your students then, uh, if they are all national, uh, the influence of the parents? Like uh, mm-hmm. we all know that the parents they have a lot of times. My father he tried to like because I was working in a kindergarten and he just well you are coming home tomorrow. Uh, that was not suitable to him. Like ha- how? Yeah. How are the kids coping with maybe the pressure from the parents to be something that they don't want to be? Like, and how can yeah. you, because that is also st- disturbing the well-being of, because sometimes you say life starts at, after 40 or something, 40 years old, but that is because the parents are not there and then they maybe can do whatever they like. <laughs> Exactly. No, and you are you are one hundred percent correct, and that's a conversation that we have. So when we start looking at character strengths, and then you know we start mapping that to the profession they've chosen, it's not uncommon for many students to say, "I don't want to be an engineer." Mm. It's great. So let's talk about that. So why did you choose that? And and particularly in this part of the world, parents are expected to take a very active role in helping their kids choose their careers. But, you know, as, as most over-caring parents, that ends up being, you will do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, being a young person is also part of the cultural value that you follow what your parents say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that has advantages, but the disadvantages are that many students end up doing an entire university degree in something that they really dislike and have no intention of ever working one day in that field, um, but they do it to say, I did it, and then they change career and they go into something completely different, and they end up wasting a lot of time. So some of it is helping them have that conversation with their parents, but also have that conversation in the classroom with other students. There's always two or three students who eventually say, I quit and I went into a different major and my parents were really angry. <laughs> okay, so then what happened? Well, I didn't stay angry forever and now it's fine. Right? So hearing it from other students, they kind of go, oh, you can do that? Uh, I can say no. <laughs> um, you know, so, so it's valuable learning for themselves uh, and I prefer that it comes from them because of course, of course, if I say it, right, I'm the outsider. Um, but when you hear it from somebody within your own culture who did it and said, no, look, I, I had this kind of conversation with my parents. I explained everything. I convinced them. And they finally saw my way and, and they let me change. So, so you know, and I find parents are also getting better at, at realizing there's um, many different careers that you can be happy and successful in. So, so that is getting a little bit better. But definitely exploring those character strengths helps students think about for themselves, you know, a job is not just a job. A job is a, is a 
profession and a career and it needs to reflect who you are or you will forever be miserable. Yeah, and that, then, yeah, and then maybe they will feel like they are a slave to the job. Yeah, or they just, you know, engage in what we call presenteeism. They just kind of do it to do it, but their heart's not in it. They don't really want to be there, and then they make everybody else unhappy. Mm, yeah, so the ripple effect is very annoying. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> especially if you're the one who does like your job yeah. and you're like, oh my God, please, can you yeah. leave? Yeah, the accountant who really <laughs> wants to be accountant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's like, you're too noisy. Get out of here. <laughs> but, but how is it, you say that you have been in Dubai for several years. Have you have you met some of your students who have been with the program and they are finished like and, and have, like, are they... Have they expressed gratitude towards this program that they like had the opportunity to figure out well for themselves that like they had other possibilities than what the parents said or what society yeah. said because it's it's always like the society or now we have more uh, social media and stuff so it's just like mm -hmm. have you met some of your older stu uh, students you have had and they yeah so a lot of them like right after the program so i have a six-week program and then i also have a semester-long um, program that i teach for credit so I, i do it two different ways but definitely i always get their feedback after uh, and many students first of all wow I didn't know you could learn to be happy so this is one of the big realizations because often we think happiness is something that just kind of happens to you you know if you're lucky you get it and if you're unlucky you don't um, and I think this is one of the strengths of positive psychology is showing people that you, you can make different decisions you can also take part in certain actions and change some of your thinking to increase that happiness now it's not about pretending everything's great and just happy faces but you know we can learn to manage our lives a lot differently to increase that happiness um so i use a lot of different <clears throat> psychological measures so locus of control self-efficacy and these things uh, we see very clear um, increases at the post measures so it's not just them saying it but the results show that um so people kind of go wow i I can do this. <laughs> uh, and that helps them really feel much more confident in life because they're able to weather, they're able to experience stress. They're less afraid of taking risks because they know if it goes wrong, you know, okay, I know what to do to not feel so bad or I know what to do to make different decisions to get myself out of that. Um, so that's one piece of feedback that typically comes through. Um, the other piece of feedback is, Can you teach my parents this? Can you teach my cousin this? Can you teach my, you know, whoever this? <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and I think there's this recognition when you start to be happier, you look around and go, why is everybody so miserable? Yeah. You know, and, and there's this desire for everybody else to, to get it. So that's another nice piece of it. But I, I think that that's just the biggest piece is the sense of ownership over their lives and much more active control over their own outcomes versus just sitting back, being passive, and just accepting whatever happens. You know, that is a strategy you can take in life, and many people do take that, and, you know, 
like that's up to you, but you, then you just get what you get. It doesn't mean you always get what you want, but at least the likelihood increases. So that's probably the big thing that comes out of um, these programs. The other interesting thing that comes out of these programs, which is more of a cultural piece, and, and you may or may not run across this in, in your next interviews, but it's um, in this part of the world and in other parts of the world as well, there is what is called a fear of happiness. The fear, fear of happiness. Fear of happiness. This is a psychological construct. Um, and some people in the West have it as well. So people who experience depression often are fearful of happiness. Because if you're too happy, you lose control. Right? Huh. Like suddenly you're like, ah. And that's scary for people. So at least if you're depressed, you have control over that. You just need to worry about one thing. Um, and, and here there's also that fear for different reasons. It's more from a uh, religious and cultural um, piece to it. Again, it's not everybody, but you know there are pockets of it, of course. And the idea is that if you are too happy, um, you will attract attention. And there's what is called the evil eye. Um, and essentially, people will be jealous. People will try and knock you back down. Um, this also comes from being part of a collective society where everybody needs to be at the same level, doing the same thing. So if you're too happy, people look at you and say, what are you up to? Like, what's going on? Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing that we're not doing? <laughs> and, it, and it threatens some of that group harmony. Um, so that's one piece to it. The other piece, again, is a little bit of that religious side that if you were too happy, Again, there's that sense of you might lose control. You might be tempted toward a path of sin. You might throw caution to the wind. You might start partying, dancing, having too much fun. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that could lead you mm -hmm. towards negative outcomes. Um, so there's definitely this fear of happiness, and we can measure that. Again, there's psychological scales that we capture the fear of happiness. And that was one of the outcomes that came um, from the program as well, is that when we started to teach people about happiness, that it's something they could control, it's something they could choose. So being happy doesn't mean you're out partying in the street. Being happy can also mean you're living a really meaningful life, where you are fulfilling your duties and you know, you're being responsible and you're doing everything you should. Um, and so when we focused on changing the definition of happiness, but also strengthening the skills so people could have more control over happiness, the fear of happiness came down. And so when people are less afraid of it, they end up making more decisions to be happier because they can regulate that. They can regulate the danger. They can regulate the risk behind it. So that was probably one of the biggest findings uh, in one of the studies that, again, also got published. But um, and, it, and it really speaks to the idea that not everybody sees happiness the same way. And not everybody necessarily wants to be happy for a variety of reasons. And so these are some of the very interesting ideas that I encounter when I'm here. Because I'm like, oh, I thought about that before. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a universal. 
So it uh, huh? raises interesting, interesting thoughts. I am just like my jaw dropped when you said that there was something that called fear of happiness. So I, I think that we have like we have you have mentioned positive psychology and like you said something interesting thing just before but uh, i was so into what you were saying so i just forgot completely <laughs> but this fear of okay. happiness uh, it calls out for like the second interview so that is like we have to do that again but the last question i want to ask you is are you have you had the chance to compare like, are you in a, uh, you must be in a, a study with some other universities about the uh, well-being of university students or higher education students? And do you find similar findings? Um, that's a difficult question because happiness is so subjective. So the, the scale, the most popular scale worldwide to measure happiness, and it, use that word, it's subjective well-being. And that scale, uh, one of the questions is, oh, I should have had it right in front of me, I should know this, uh, but something to do with, you know, overall, I'm satisfied with my life. So it's really hard to say this person is happier than that person because it has to do with your perception of what you have, what you know, and how things are, which means you can ask somebody in Afghanistan, are you satisfied with your life? And they would say, yes. And you can ask somebody in New York City who lives on the 57th floor of an amazing penthouse, are you satisfied with your life? And they would say, yes. And they would both score a seven. Yeah. So when we compare countries, uh, we actually don't often see that huge of differences. At the same time, having said that, um, you know, if we look at the World Happiness Index, are there differences between countries? Absolutely. Uh, and Afghanistan does, does score near the bottom, uh, whereas Canada, for example, is fifth this year, I think. Um, so there are differences, but it's it's difficult because it is subjective and it's relative to you at that moment in time. Yeah. So it's hard to compare. Okay, but uh, that gives me like, uh, yeah, now my head is spinning, but uh, <laughs> it, 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 it has been great talking to you because it's always this uh, same thing. Like when, you, when we talked about it, that the students in general it, it, or those who are in school that they are often left out because they are just learning to be grown-ups in a sense mm -hmm. so yeah. at this moment i would th just thank you for for using your time i don't know if it's the weekend because it's we are taping this recording this on a friday so maybe you are already have started your weekend but Thank you very much, Louise, for talking to me. And it, My pleasure. We have to talk again because positive psychology, fear of happiness, and I, I, I got chills when you said that. I was just like, what? Is that possible? So that's, that's it's a very interesting topic. And then the happiness index, because, okay, I will say it, that, that the Nordic region is always in top five, so... <laughs> Yes. So yes. we Icelandic people, we are always like at the top. 
Okay, well, next time we speak, let's talk about the happiness index because you'll be very disappointed to hear what it actually measures. Okay. It's all about money. <laughs> well, 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 now I am really intrigued. So thank you very okay. much for this for this time. So I will just say until next time, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. This has been the Tribute to Happiness podcast. Tune in for next week's episode. You'll find us on social media.